Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Colin's Last Stand Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined by Mufasa's side bitch, Diggy Moriarty. <laughs> I got a joke for you. Uh, hit me with it. This is my favorite one, I think. Okay. What did Daisy Duck say when she bought lipstick? I don't know. Put it on my bill. <laughs> That's such a good one. <laughs> You're really cracking yourself up. That's it for CLS Knockback today. We appreciate your... Your love, kindness, and support. <laughs> Thank you very There's much. There's nothing else to say about this one. That's it. Dagan, today I wanted to do uh, an episode that I think is going to be catered very much to you and your expertise, not only with Disney movies and, and, and that, but you're an animator, an animation fan. You're a lot of things that can speak to this topic, which is The Lion King, the classic 1994 Disney movie. Yes. That's often considered by many to be the best Disney movie perhaps ever. I don't agree, but I think it's a great movie nonetheless. The best Disney movie, of course, is Robin Hood. Now, Dagan, before we get into it, I want to just remind everyone that we are supported on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand. So if you enjoy our retro and nostalgia themed podcast called Knockback and you want to throw us a few bucks a month, whatever you can, please consider doing so at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand because it allows us to continue to do this show and provide it for you. And you also get special perks uh, for supporting us depending on the level you support us at. You can get exclusive Q&A videos. You can get early access to every episode of the show plus other shows that we do and that I do. You can get voting rights to vote on topics and exclusive podcasts and all the rest. So a lot of reasons to join us, join us over at Patreon if you can. If you can't and you listen to us on the free feed, we'd really appreciate a kind review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you listen to things as it allows us algorithmically to bubble up and find a new and bigger audience. And we appreciate that very much. So there thank you, you for listening to us. We appreciate you. I'm sorry. Did you say something? I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, not at all. Okay. That, thank, thank you very much. Yeah, I wanted to reiterate my thank yous as well. Oh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's enough now. <laughs> That's enough, Adam. Now, Dagan, The Lion King. Yes. Great topic. Yeah, I, I, it was one that I think was out of left field. Like, I want, I thought about, like, what, what's a, what's one that's unusual for me to pick? Because yeah. I don't have any real affinity for this movie. But I know a lot of the audience does. And I like talking about interesting backstories. And obviously, I mean, I, I obviously think it's a good movie. I've seen it many times. But what does this movie mean? What is the, what is the Lion King all about in terms of its, like, its place in animation history? I think it has a really important place as far as animated films go, not just as Disney animated films, but animated films in general, maybe even Disney, maybe even Disney films. And, you know, maybe we could even relegate it to children's films. Very important, very high quality. It was the fourth in the Disney, you know, the fabled Disney animation renaissance of the 80s. It was the fourth. It wasn't the fourth in line directly, but it was the fourth major animated movie starting with The Little Mermaid in 89 and then it went Beauty and the Beast. Typically, the, people refer to it as first starting with The Little Mermaid, 
then Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Lion King coming forth. Of course, The Rescuers Down Under was also in there after Little Mermaid, but that movie was a sequel to the seven, the Rescuers movie of the 70s and didn't have the same, for whatever reason, didn't have the same resonance and isn't generally counted, which is a little silly. It's actually kind of a, it's actually that movie, The Rescuers Down Under has a lot of merits. I don't know how many people out there have seen it, but that's a decent movie as well. So, so the Lion King's typically considered the fourth in line of that Disney renaissance and that Disney animation renaissance, I should say. And just a really important film, really beautifully done. And yeah, I can't wait to break it down and get into it with you a little bit. Right. I think it's, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it. We're not going to get too, I don't think we have to get too deep into the story. I want to know more about, we could talk about the movie and the good parts of the movie, obviously, but I want to know more about how it was made and and talk about that and and this renaissance period and what was going on at Disney beforehand and afterwards and stuff like that and how they kind of matched this. Because as you were saying, this Disney renaissance that is often, as you said, cited as beginning in 1989 with The Little Mermaid and ending probably sometime in 1999, I guess that would be Hercules? No, Hercules was 97, then it was Mulan. Oh, it would be Tarzan in 1999. They typically ended at Tarzan. Right. There were good movies to come after that, though. Right, right. In the, in, the, in the years after that. But for some reason, they sort of stop it at Tarzan. And that might just be drawn up to a, you know, how the movies performed in the box office. Right. Um, you know, they might have, you know, there's some, we'll talk about post, post-Tarzan a little bit later if we have time. But it doesn't really necessarily end with Tarzan. I don't, I mean, Tarzan, you were telling me the other day you haven't seen Tarzan. No, I never saw Tarzan. Highly recommended. You have to, you should definitely see it. Out of all of these movies. Great movie. Because you had mentioned, so, so Little Mermaid, 1989. Right. Rescuers is 1990, I think. Beauty yep. and the Beast is 1991. Aladdin, 1992. And then there's no movie, I think, in 93. Nothing in 93. Is. Yeah, there's nothing in 1993, I don't think. 1994 is The Lion King. 1995, Pocahontas. 1996 is nothing. 1997 is Hercules. 98 is Mulan. And 99 is Tarzan. And those are, yeah, considered kind of the golden era. And it's funny, Dagan, because being a kid that was born in 1984, I always thought that those movies just resonated with me most, especially like Beauty and the Beast and I Love Little Mermaid and and those kinds of movies. I was like, those were just the movies of my childhood. But in reading about them since, it seems like it's kind of unanimous that these are kind of the golden era movies. Yeah. And it's funny because you and I were discussing that I have a very strange top three Disney movies list. What is your top three? I know you're number one, but what's your top three? My number one is Robin Hood. I think Robin Hood is exceptional. I love, love, love that movie. Yeah, you always loved it. Number two is Fox and the Hound. That's right. We talked about that. And number three is Peter Pan. Peter Pan. So so this is a weird hodgepodge of movies, but I really, really love. Yeah. Those three Disney movies. They're, they're, those else. are good selections. They're, they're, and they, they're sort of pertaining to your upbringing. I mean, Peter Pan was earlier, but Peter Pan is typically a favorite. That's a, you can't, I, that's definitely in my top five. And sure. I also was in love with Mary Martin's Peter Pan. And that's probably, that probably yes, you were. I was obsessed, <laughs> obsessed with Mary Martin. You Peter really Pan. were. I saw that, that probably, cute. probably 500 times. What did you have that on video? Yeah, we, on VHS? We, we, it was one of those things. Remember, we did, depending again on the order that these go live in, we did the episode about, the video store and the early VCR and stuff like that. And it was one of those things that we taped off the television. And then I just watched <laughs> ad nauseum. You really did. I really distinctly remember that. And I used to take like mom used to mom would let me have, you know, Peter Pan had like a, like a dagger, like a Dirk type knife. And mom would let me take like a plastic, you know, one of those um, like Chinette knives. And I would allow, I was allowed to play with that as nice. like my dagger, my, my, Very belt, nice. my belt loop or whatever. That's a nice facsimile of a dagger. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a similar size and it, cause like it didn't seem like Peter Pan ever really used it. It was just That's kind of really like a, a decorative thing. Anyway. That's cute. We could do another one on Peter Pan and, and, uh, and all of that down the line. 
But for people that are unfamiliar with kind of the Lion King story, I want to talk a little bit about it. But I want to begin by noting that, you know, what like some interesting information about it. You know, $45 million budget, the best-selling videotape of all time, 30 million VHS copies, 30 Can you million at 1999 a pop maybe. I mean, that's a lot of money. Uh, it's the 19th top grossing movie of all time. It was released uh, in mid-June in 1994. It's the 32nd Disney animated film. And it's the first Disney film. I didn't realize this, but it makes sense when you think about it. It's the first Disney film that's not based on something. Like, not based on a, in a pre-existing story. It is a retelling of Hamlet, Shakespeare's Hamlet. Exactly. But it's not based in a story that had already existed. Right. Like Peter Pan, like Robin Hood, whatever the case may be. Po- um you know, Pinocchio, whatever. Do you know about the whole Simba the White Lion thing, though? No, talk to me about that. So we'll talk about it briefly because I don't want to talk out of school. I don't know too much about it. But there was an anime, I believe started with manga, and there was an anime series by the famed, I believe it was by Asamu Tezuka who created Astro Boy. He did an anime property called Simba the White Lion. And that was one of the early... As far as I know, that was one of the early anime series brought over to the United States in the 60s, along with things like Speed Racer. And Simba the White Lion was a very, apparently was a very similar in story structure to The Lion King. And they, there was a big controversy when The Lion King came out and people drew up, you know, whatever, dug that up and drew up that parallel and there was a lot of controversy and a lot of accusations t- towards Disney about stealing that. Well, well and mean, never well, giving it credit. Well, who could have possibly, since the, the protagonist of Lion King is named Simba, I can see how they that, how they could, how they might get away from that. So, what do you think about that controversy? Talk to and it might have been Kimba. Might have been Kimba the White Lion. It might have been it might have been Kimba the White Lion. And then when it was translated for North America, it was Simba. Whatever it was, it was very very similar. What do you think about that? Do you think that that's? Do you think they stole it? <sighs> it's one of those things where. You know, I see this happen a lot, and it's actually happened to me in in the business of animation. Sometimes sometimes people just have similar ideas. It just comes out that way, you know. I'm very open-minded to the fact of coincidences, and maybe it's two people had similar thoughts. And, and I, you also have to sort of entertain the possibility of something that kind of sinks into your subconscious and sort of emerges when you're creating something. That, you know, it, whether it's an influence or something you're just calling up out of your memory or sort of the dark reaches of the those little intangible folds of your brain. It's just I think things just happen like that. I, I I'm so the, the notion of stealing something creatively is so foreign to me that I think it's just almost unbelievable, unbelievable to me that that would happen. I know it does. But I don't know. I, I know the producer, one of the producers on this movie, Don Hahn, has spoken to it. He's he's he and he said as much, you know, we kind of just drew it up to a thing where when we looked into it is that, you know, a lot of the guys of, were of that generation to grow up with that. Maybe it was just kind of laying around in the back of their brain and it sort of came out, you know, I don't I, I I'm you know, I'm leery to believe that, you know, I'm sort of hesitant to believe that it's that's somewhat brazen. It would be somewhat brazen to do that. And then it would get away be. with it. Right. Right. It's very similar to I mean, it sounds similar, at least to the Hunger Games. A lot of people claim that what her name Suzanne Collins, I think her yeah, name is, right. is or Susanna Collins, is stole Battle Royale, which is a famous Japanese book. Yes, and it is exactly what Battle it's Royale is. Very I mean, it's similar. absolutely. I've I have the book. It's huge. I never read the entire thing. Someone actually gave it to me, 
And I've, I read the first two Hunger Games books and I didn't read the third one because the first two were exactly the same. So I didn't feel like I really needed to read the third one. But a lot of people really draw comparisons and, and claim that she stole that book. And the, the stories are the same. Like, not the political overtones and stuff, but the children fighting on an island and, like, killing Very each other. Very similar thing. It's the same thing, but I don't think she stole it. No. It's broad enough of a thing where you could say, okay, two people had the same vision for something, you know? It's so dark. Anyway, we can do another one on the Hunger Games one day because I would like to do that. But just to give a few more little tidbits before we get into the kind of dig, you know, because for people that don't know that might be new to the show or not familiar with Dagan, the co-host, my brother, he's an animator, a professional animator for 20 plus years, and so... He has a lot of interesting insight and just a lot of inherent knowledge about this sort of stuff. And I really can't wait to kind of jump into this, specifically from the perspective of someone like you in the animation industry and animation pro. What how, what this movie means to you and your contemporaries and your peers. Awesome. Because I think that's going to be really fun to Very talk cool. about. Thanks, man. The movie grossed, I think, unadjusted $968 million at the box office, almost a billion dollars. On a, let's see, I have it written down here, on a $45 million budget, like I said earlier, I think. It's 1994's biggest film. Yep. It won two Academy Awards and a Golden Globe. And it's the highest grossing 2D film ever in terms of at 2D animation. I think my assumption is Toy Story would probably have beaten it, but I didn't actually look at that. You know what? That's a good That's a good question. I wonder. I wonder. Yeah, Toy, Toy Story would have... Uh, that could be a contender for sure. The cast is actually quite impressive as well when you look at the cast of voice actors. This was at the height of Jonathan Taylor Thomas's you know, popularity. Jonathan Taylor Thomas, for people that don't know, was like kind of a child actor into a, into a like young, you know, teen and young adulthood. But at this time, he was like a huge star on Home Improvement, which is an ABC sitcom that I actually really love. That's really funny. It's, you know, starring Tim the Two Man Taylor. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and it's, it's, it's a very silly and very funny and very irreverent show. And he was like the middle child on that show and it was kind of like a teen heartthrob and teen icon at that time. And he, as far as I understand, like kind of voluntarily walked away from acting. So that's super interesting. Oh, I didn't know about that. So he plays Simba, who's the main character, the main lion cub. And then when Simba grows up, because the movie half the movie really takes place as Simba as a child, and half the movie takes place as Simba as an adult. And Matthew Broderick, famous you know actor Matthew Broderick, plays the adult Simba. And then for Nala, who's this kind of like his you know female friend and kind of love interest, you know, um, is played as an adult by Moira Kelly, who you might know most from her brief role on The West Wing. She was in the first season of the West Wing was written off the show because no one liked her. Oh, wow. Uh, Scar, who's the antagonist, is played by Jeremy Irons. Very well done. Very great Beautiful. performance. James Earl Jones, the the lovely, amazing James Earl Jones, plays Mufasa, who's like the the patriarch of the of the pride. Um, Timon and Pumbaa are played by Ernie Sabella and Nathan Lane. And we love Nathan Lane. We were talking about him, actually. We went and saw Solo. It was funny because they were originally, as far as I understand, originally supposed to play the hyenas. And they that's and, right, I think. And then I think Whoopi Goldberg came in and they made a female hyena for her. And then they were like kind of improving. They were like doing so those two were doing some sort of Broadway play at the time and were like coming in to just try out. And they like kind of like liked what they were doing. So they made them Timon and Pooba. They're, they're cool. awesome. Nathan Very Lane appeal. rules. I love Nathan Lane. So good. He's a great actor. So talk to me a little bit about how this movie came about, Dagan, because one of okay. the interesting things that I love about the story of The Lion King, and I'm not talking about the plot. I'm talking about the story surrounding the movie. Is that it? No one believed in it. No one that was considered, or few people that were considered truly talented, were working on it. Apparently, from what I understand, that like most of the Disney inherent in-house talent was working on Pocahontas. Yes. And this movie had incubated for like six years. It was conceived apparently during what was the 1988 movie that Disney released, the one before The Little Mermaid. Um, there before Little Mermaid came. 
Great Mass Detective. Oh, Oliver and Company. Yeah, Oliver and Company. Yeah. So during the press tour for Oliver and Company, as far as I understand, during the press tour, they came up with this idea, this treatment for The Lion King on these long international flights. This was 1988. And the movie kind of spawned from there and they originally had kind of envisioned something very serious national. I think they call it national geographic, like a lot like this almost outrageous thing. I think they were going to call it originally King of the jungle until they realized that there aren't lions in the jungle. Right. And it kind of evolved into what we know today as like a musical and stuff like that. So talk to me a little bit about, about kind of the, the genesis of the lion King and, and, okay. and how it came to be and how these kind of two competing teams created two great movies. Yeah. That actually the B team created what I think is widely considered the better movie. Yeah. Which is really exactly you. You said it so succinctly and so correctly already. That so that's exactly what happened. The Lion King was in production at the same time as the film Pocahontas, and Pocahontas. I think people were very excited about Pocahontas because it was a very strong message movie about acceptance and tolerance and everything like that. And pr- prior to that, this was Disney animation and the Disney company really feeling their oats with their previous successes, especially starting with the little mermaid up to this point. And now feeling that they could take a departure and make a message film and really seasoned, very extremely talented, almost household name animators were tied to the picture from the beginning. Guys like Glenn Keane, Nick Ranieri, Eric Goldberg, sort of the veteran animators like the 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 most talented the most seasoned guys were attaching themselves to this movie and not only was it going to be sort of a message picture and this important beautiful thing but guys like mike gabriel i believe were tied to art directing this movie and it was just going to be this gorgeously realized beautifully drawn beautifully animated piece they were even planning from very early which they do but from very early on they were they were initially planning sequences that were animated completely in pastel, which they do. They do do that. The color of the wind sequence that Glenn Keane supervised. So people were very, very excited about this film and everybody wanted to be attached to it. And unfortunately the Lion King sort of played second fiddle. And what ended up happening was there were a lot of battlefield. As far as I remember as far as I know, there were a lot of battlefield promotions to some of the talented animation hopefuls in the company that were that were slowly making their way up were promoted to the lead roles and the supervisory roles of of on the Lion King. And that was how I think Disney also appeased the talent by promoting them to spots and making them, you know, propping them up and saying, You guys are gonna be in charge of this and sort of trying to create some excitement and buzz behind this film from the artists. And also, just to give you guys a brief history in case there's people out there that don't know, Disney historically created a system for their feature films where there were tip, very tip, not all the time, but very typically, very commonly, there were, would be a supervisor or supervisors for each character, for each main character, and some of the secondary characters as well, that would supervise the character and sort of do the key animation for the most, you know, the quote-unquote most important scenes in the film. And they would also, they would supervise a, a group of people that worked below them on those characters. So each character would have a supervisor and a team of people working on it. And that the idea behind that was to maintain some kind of consistency, not only in the look of the character, but in the performance of the character. And it was really a brilliant system when they came up with this, you know, many decades prior 
So when I when I talk about the key animation talent attached to each movie, that's what I'm referring to. And there there were guys like I don't want to for, forget any names. Some of these guys are my favorite animators ever. But let's see. So tied to the Lion King were some of the up and coming animators. Sure, Andreas Deja, who ended up supervising Scar and did unbelievable jobs. I mean, th- this movie holds up. The animation holds up in this movie so well, and guys like Tony Fucili, Mark Hen, Ruben Aquino, Anthony DeRosa, all these guys were taking their first, mostly, most of these guys were taking their first steps into these higher roles of supervising characters and becoming lead animators, and sometimes directing animators on the picture. And to give you guys some, some reference, Ruben Aquino was one of the guys who did some of the most gorgeous stuff previously on the character of Ursula in The Little Mermaid. Tony Fucili actually left Disney to work with Brad Bird at Warner Brothers on Iron Giant, and he was the lead guy on Hogarth, the Hogarth Hughes character. Brilliant character animator, and actually a brilliant picture book illustrator as well, Tony Fucili, one of my favorite dudes. Big, Really big shot at Pixar now. And uh, Andreas Deja did a bunch of beautiful work coming up to his scar role, but his scars were really where he really where he took center stage and got a lot of notoriety for his role. He's originally a a guy from Germany who came over. I think he was one of those guys. Andreas Deja was one of those guys that wrote a letter like to Disney and like his, maybe when he was in junior high school and said, I'm really interested in working with you and then maintained a correspondence all through his schooling until he impressed them so much just by having a correspondence with some of the lead animators that were then retiring at that time in the seventies and eighties. And they said, yeah, come over and work here. He was that, he was that talented. And the thing is, The Lion King came out, I believe, in the summer of 1994. Right, June 1994. Right, and I left for art school in winter of 94, like February. So when I came into art school, this when I went to school for animation, we were really, I remember really, really being, there was a palpable excitement for this movie coming out. And I remember going all to see it. You know, we all went to see it together one weekend night, uh, me and a, f- a few of my classmates that I went to art school with and it had really big it's the first Disney film that I remember having a big impact on our work specifically the Timon and Pumbaa characters for some reason but you know previous to that we were all super jazzed about you know the early 90s late 80s early 90s stuff like Animaniacs Tiny Toons everybody was you know a lot of people were jazzed about anime some people were coming from a comic book background so they were like, at that time, the Spawn animated series or whatever it was, there was always something different. But this was the first Disney ch- children's film that I remember everybody, you know, we were in our late teens, early 20s at that point, getting really excited about. This was the first one. And I think it kind of opened our purview and opened up our, you know, we became sort of op- more open-minded about the kitty, quote-unquote, kitty fair through this movie. Because previous to this, I remember going to see Little Mermaid when it came out in the movie theater. I remember specifically dating a girl who looked like um, Susanna Hoff, Susanna Haas of the of the Bangles, the beat. The yeah, 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 yeah. Hoff. She yeah. looked exactly like her. Oh my her. god, lucky! You, I went dude. to see a, I went to see <laughs> Little Mermaid with her. I forgot her name. I had such a, I have such a crush on her. She looked exactly like her, and I went to see the. I, I don't know if oh, I went to see. Hey. And I remember going to see Beauty and the Beast in the theater, and I remember really being excited about seeing Aladdin in the theater. So it wasn't like I wasn't seeing the movies. I was an animation fan, but this was the first one I remember really being excited about 
Yeah, it really resonated for some reason. And I think I've I think I saw it in the theater multiple times as well. So what other color what other background can I give you on this movie that's yeah, I'm I'm I'm, cu- well, I'm I'm kind of curious to even go go further back. Like, where was Disney standing? Yeah, before 1989, before The Little Mermaid, and kind of moving into this, because it seems like Disney really lost its gravitas and lost its way. I know that Don Bluth left in the early 80s, and that was, and he took a bunch of people with yeah, him. Yeah, he left really, in 79. 79. Yep. And he, you know, and he took a, you know, Secret of Nim. I think was their first movie, right? That they did with. Uh, they did a film. They lit when Don Bluth left. He took nine key guys with him. Nine really important people. Guys like Gary Goldman, John Pomeroy. These were like, you have to understand, the weird, here's the thing about Don Bluth. I'll give you a little bit of backstory on him. He worked for Disney in the 60s. And he was one of the apprentices to Milt Call, who was like one of, he he was one of Disney's, Walt Disney himself had a band of, a group of animators that came on, I guess anywhere from from the 30s through the 40s, depending on when they first entered the studio, that he eventually branded his nine old men. And these were the nine superstar supervising animators in the studio that worked. Some of them were working as early as Snow White, which was their first film, all through the 40s, all through the 50s, and through the 60s. These are the guys who were Disney's top guys that he would actually deal with on a personal basis and sit with and go over story and storyboard with, and they were the household name guys. And in the set, what had happened was Disney, Walt Disney died in the 60s. He passed away during the production of The Jungle Book. That was the last point of him having much involvement with the films. Now, you have to also understand, it gets complicated because Disney was already starting to go, his roots were in animation. He was an animator himself in Kansas City. Before he even before Hollywood, before Disney became a thing, he had a partner. So he was in the trenches and was an artist himself. Now, when he came over and started Disney and with the TV stuff and the, the theatrical shorts that he did, even before they did their first theatrical feature film in Snow White, he that's what he did. He was very involved with animation. It was all about animation. But by the late 40s and going into the 50s, there was TV. There was the live action stuff. There were the theme parks. So he became, he sort of, he he was, he had his arm, his tentacles and a lot of different things. That wasn't just the animation. So he, it's not like he was only entrenched in animation already by the time he passed 20 years later. He was already largely not involved, at least not nearly as much as he once was. So these nine guys were, you know, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, Milt Call. These were the guys that took over Disney Animation when he became more diversified and was more distracted by other things. And as the company grew and as their profitability grew and as their whole, you know, their, you know, world conquering mission grew, right? Merchandise, toys, everything, products, every, every single thing under the sun. These were the guys that took over animation. And... By the time Walt passed before Jungle Book, Jungle Book came out, what had happened was when Walt died, the ship they the ship kind of became rudderless. What had happened was even though he wasn't as involved, these guys didn't know what it, these guys really didn't know what to do without Walt's guidance. And paired with that, they were starting to be of retirement age. These guys were getting older. 
they're already doing it. They've already been doing it for 40 years, you know, drawing everything by hand. So what had happened sometime in there in the 60s, Milt Call, who even among the nine old men was considered like, even to this day, is considered like maybe the finest animator who ever lived. He was like a god among animators, brilliant draftsman, could, couldn't make anything but the most perfect drawing, just a brilliant draftsman and a brilliant animator notorious difficult man but he took on Don Bluth as one of his assistants which was saying a lot because this man didn't take on assistance you know no one could keep up with him most of the other nine old men couldn't draw like this guy so Don Bluth came up under him and then subsequently at some point left Disney and came back and when Don Bluth came back he was a raging superstar in the studio I mean say what you want about Don Bluth and his films and his story and everything Don Bluth draws like milk almost as well as milk call could draw he's a brilliant he's a brilliant draftsman and a brilliant animator so don bluth already had that reputation of being a rising star in the studio but he had a lot of problems with the way things were getting done and there was a lot of animosity and there was a lot of sort of behind closed doors bickering and infighting i think a lot of people a lot of the older guys there thought he was arrogant took exception to him taking a higher leadership position in the studio. They didn't think he had the personality for it. And push, push came to shove, and he left in 1979. In fact, he animated some scenes on Fox and the Hound that he wasn't even credit for, credited for. He left on very bad terms. And a lot of the guys walked out with him. Are, are, are there a lot of details on that specific like, walkout yeah. and stuff, like the, the lines div- drawn and divided and whatnot? Absolutely. I've heard a lot about it from different animators who I'll talk about. Some of them were already older veteran animators that were entrenched at Disney's at the time. And some of them were the younger guys that were going to Cal Arts, which was an art school largely funded by Disney. Sort of a Disney breeding ground, especially back then, for young artists. And some of those young Cal Arts guys that were coming into Disney, leaving school and coming into Disney as, as young apprentice animators have a lot of stories about that. Because Don Bluth wasn't that much older than those guys. So when Don left with John Pomeroy and Gary Goldman, who ended up becoming Don Bluth's production partner, and those other you know six or seven people, they literally, I think what had happened, they were doing at night, they were literally working in Don Bluth's garage. I believe it was Don Bluth's garage. He had like a two-car garage. They had like a little animation studio set up in there. And they actually did a feature film in there, fully hand-drawn, um, called Banjo the Woodpile Cat. And it they did a beginning-to-end feature film and put it out there, and it was really highly regarded. And you could see a lot of those Don Bluth sort of stamps on it going back. It, it looks like a Don Bluth film. It's early. It's a little more primitive, but it, it, you know it has all those hallmarks. And so Banjo was their first movie, and then Secret of Nim was their first, you know, well-funded feature film project. And they got a lot of they got a lot of shine for that because it felt differently, and ha- you know, it was based on the the novel. Mrs. Brisby and the Rats and Nim is the name of the novel, I believe. Um, don't quote me on that, but based on the novel, they got the rights to the novel, and it that's one of my favorite films of all, one of my favorite animated films of all time. It's gorgeous. So Don left to work on that, but what was happening was there was a new crop of students coming out of Cal Arts, and in that class was Brad Bird, John Lasseter. This was, they were all in the same class. Tim Burton, 
Oh, wow. Tim Burton was in Yeah, he was in the class. John Musker, who is one of the supervising directors of films, many films, but especially Little Mermaid. Like a who's who of young animation talent. Those guys were coming, finishing art school. And a lot of the nine old men and some of the other supervising guys that were just below the nine old men were teaching at CalArts. So they were the guys grooming the next generation of guys coming out and that would inevitably go through Disney at some point. But Disney animation was falling apart because the nine old men were not only distracted by their teaching positions and sort of busy with that, but they were also retiring. Some of them were moving away. Some of them were pa- some of them were getting sick and pa- unfortunately passing away. And that coupled with just the whole rudderless thing and not having that that captain to steer the ship in Walt was a big thing. And over through the late 60s, early 70s, all the way to the late 70s, animation was languishing. They were trying. They they were doing projects. They were doing the rescue. They did the rescuers. They did... Robin Hood's in there, I think, right? They did Robin Hood in 1973. They did Fox and the Hound. Nothing It's really... funny that my movie, the movies I like come from this era. I love Robin Hood, too. There's a, there's a great appeal in Robin Hood, and that's a whole other thing we could talk about with the xerography technique that they were developing where you could see the sketchy lines and everything like that. Same, same as the 101 Dalmatians, which is one of my favorites as well. But I understand your appeal with that movie. That's, that movie is just strangely appealing. Fox and the Hound was in the late 70s, and then they tried really weird things like the Black Cauldron in the early 80s, I believe. So, But nothing was hitting and nothing was sticking. And they really they sort of lacked a champion as well. And things didn't look good for animation until really the, there were some some bright spots in there, but things really didn't look good until the success of The Little Mermaid. And that really empowered, that set off a whole new thing and really empowered Disney to return to form of really where they came from. So it's really, it's really an interesting story. Very, some particularly dark times in that, I would say, very early 70s through... The mid 80s, that 15 year period, really a lot of interesting ups and downs and projects and direct to video things and guys coming in and trying to steer the ship and getting fired. John Lasseter famously got fired from Disney. John Lasseter was. The first time? <laughs> yeah, for the first time. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I mean, the John, yeah, that would have been a whole different trajectory had that not happened a couple of months ago. But he was fired. He was famously fired from Disney. And you know, famously co-founded Pixar and everything like that. But when Pixar was co-founded, there was no, there was no inkling or hint that this would ever be affiliated with Disney. So it's funny how things like that come full circle. Right, right. It's exactly what we were talking about with Apple firing Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs founds Next and then Apple buys Next. It's a very similar thing. Right. And Steve Jobs is also involved with Pixar. But the thing about John Lasseter is too, where he ended up was not only supervise, not only the chief creative officer for, for Pixar, he was the chief creative officer of disney proper everything went through him everything disney went through him i don't know about marvel marvel and star wars you know lucas arts and everything lucasfilm have different sort of different marshals and different you know guardians of those particular brands but for disney proper and the henson but for disney proper and Pixar, John Lasseter was the guy. You know, is he going to be the guy anymore? I don't know. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. You know more about that than I do. It seems like he's probably done. It's not. It doesn't. You know, it's pretty heartbreaking. I don't know all the ins and outs about it, but I thought it was a little more innocent. I I work with a girl who was telling me 
more about it and it doesn't sound good. Right, right. So. Well, so more i'm curious about i don't want to get too off of a lion king i guess this is gonna be a more wide-ranging podcast as i as i pick your brain but did did disney get the last laugh over don bluth don bluth did all dogs go to heaven or that's not he him. did yeah yep, so that's bluth and american tale american tale yep. so these are these are mid to late 80s movies as far as i know yeah and but by the time Little Mermaid and then all the sequence of movies started, they must have gotten the last laugh over him, you have to assume. Don Bluth never really had the staying power of Disney. And a lot of people that have some knowledge into the situation or know about animation draw it up to Don Bluth is not a story man. And I guess I guess you could say that is true. Where really where he always shined was with character design and animation proper. And you could see that in his projects. I mean, if you look at things like, not only things like The Secret of Nim, which was probably his, as far as I'm concerned, as far as many animation aficionados are concerned, that's his masterpiece. But even if you look at projects like Space Ace, if you look at projects like Dragon's Lair, Dragon's Lair 2, some of the other films I'm he's done. I'm not sure I knew there was a sequel to Dragon's Lair. Oh, Dragon's Lair 2 Time Warp. It's it's gorgeous. I didn't even think I knew that. I, I don't think it's as quite as inventive as Dragon's Lair, but the art in it is absolutely gorgeous. It's it's so great. And it's a similar kind of game. Similar thing. It opens where Dirk and Daphne have a bunch of kids that all the little girls look like Daphne and all the little boys look like Dirk. And it opens where his mother-in-law is like chasing him. She's like chasing him with like a like a giant rolling pin or something. Like, you better... I don't know. Oh, you know what happens? Daphne got kidnapped again. And the mother-in-law is there. She's like, you better go save Daphne. And she, that's how the game opens. She's chasing him with a giant rolling pit. And all the kids that's are cute. like, daddy. And there's literally like 16. It's like literally like 10 girls and 10 boys. It's 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 adorable. But that's really where he shined was with the visuals. And if you look at it, you you would say, yeah, but look at The Secret of Nim. But The Secret of Nim was based on a novel. Right. Uh, so... You know, and not only that, but his his lieutenants were also known for the same thing. Guys like John Pomeroy, he was known to be have very similar strengths to Don Bluth. He was a brilliant character animator and a brilliant character designer. So they didn't take a writer with them. Is what you're I don't think you know they probably could have used that because he. I love thing. I like. I'm really partial to All Dogs Go to Heaven. Very nostalgic. For yeah, it. it's a great film. You film. and I watched American Tale a lot as kids, and we, I, I remember I would always sing the songs to you and stuff like that. You were really young. But then he also did really, you know, egregious flops like Rockadoodle, trying to think of some others. He did a, he was he was known to kind of end up in a pickle and a bind and do a lot of direct to video stuff, which was lower quality, which was very contrary to his seemingly very contrary to his mantra of high quality visuals. But he pioneered a lot of things to Don Bluth, especially not to keep going back not to beat a dead horse and not to keep going back to Secret of Nim, but it's such a gorgeously, beautifully done movie, especially if you look at the era it was produced in, very ahead of its time. You could see how hungry they were. You know, they weren't working 40 hours a week on this thing. These guys were killing themselves. Uh, but, you know, I was going to say some of the effects animation, because these were, these were films completely shot on Oxbury cameras, cell painted, colored gels for effects. I mean, these, these, were, this was a, these were painstaking techniques. So, 
I don't think it's fit. I don't think you could say Don Bluth ever got the last laugh on Disney. I think for a while it probably seemed like he was gonna be. I could imagine being in Disney and watching those guys leave and being like, "Shit, maybe should I should I be going with those guys?" Especially if you take into consideration what was going on at Disney, which didn't look good for animation. Right. What were the What were the movies immediately before The Little Mermaid? Like we were talking about. Let me look. Because I know I don't want to forget any right because I, I I guess I, I want to know how, how like how bleak it was because it's funny when you talk about the 70s okay. you know leading like in the 20 years before the Lion King yeah it doesn't from my layman perspective it doesn't seem that bleak when you're talking about Robin Hood and Fox and the Hound and he's like I fucking love these movies I loved Fox and the Hound we were talking about Fox and the Hound I had mm-hmm. a I had a Fox and the Hound when a metal Fox and the Hound thermos brand lunchbox in second grade I loved that movie that movie has great pathos in it very sad movie yeah it's super fun and you really respond i really responded to that as a child you know as that forbidden friendship type thing oh i i think the fox i don't know how well i don't i will be fair by saying i don't think the fox and the hound holds up as well as you think it does but as a kid that really resonated i haven't seen it since i was probably a teenager but the thing is it didn't do well you know, and that and that it's so that's unfortunately for better or for worse, right or for wrong. That's that's how it works. You know, did it do well at the box office or not? You know, look what's going on. We just did a whole thing. Look what's going on with the solo movie. You know, it's not doing well at the box office. It's a good movie. So I don't understand what the hell's going on. Right. Right. Exactly. There, right. Exactly. Know? Exactly. So. So, Kyle, for the movies that came before, I'll go back to 73 was Robin Hood. OK. I don't know if there was something in between Robin Hood and The Rescuers, but The Rescuers was 1977. Also a decent movie, but sort of strange. Bob Newhart and who is his... Who plays the the mouse of Bianca to Bob Newhart? I forget. It's not Jaja Gabor. But a little strange. I can understand how kids wouldn't resonate with that movie. It's not particularly colorful it's not particularly fun it's it's really beautifully animated but there's something there that doesn't seem there's a there's a there's a or almost like a grayness and a blandness and sort of a sort of a monotonous there's a there's a there's a lack of fun in these movies for some reason i wouldn't paint robin hood that way robin hood came in 73 and i think that might have been the last one that felt sort of sort of felt colorful and light and fun and it was an adventure and characters that resonated and Robin was super cool yeah, he was and the awesome. bad guy so cool. was you know there was a coward the bad guy was a coward but then there was also a menacing bad guy right, and right, of course, yeah. you know it had and the art was beautiful and it was colorful you know and it had the sort of simperings you know sidekick that would you know try to you know that was always constantly trying to please it had all those things that made a movie a film fun competitions and running and chasing and danger and all that kind of stuff but the rescuers didn't have that it was a it was a really almost a product of its time it felt very late 70s you know if you think of like film during the late 70s it wasn't a particularly fun time in film there was a lot of heaviness going on you think of like films like the french connection and things like that awesome movies but there was a real lack of fun and a grittiness that i don't think carried over to children's entertainment too well you know, so I don't know if there's anything between Robin Hood in 73 and the Rescuers in 77. After that, I believe was the Fox and the Hound, which I thought was 80. I thought it was 79, but it wasn't. It was 81, apparently. Which doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem right, but it's, it's 81. 
Black Cauldron was 85. And then The Great Mouse Detective was 86. And I like that movie. Have you ever seen that movie? No, I don't think I have actually. That's a great movie based on Sherlock Holmes, Basil of Baker Street, right? But with anthropomorphic animal characters. Very appealing. Very appealing. Had a that was the first I believe that was the first character supervised by Glenn Keane, the bad guy Radigan, who was a giant rat, who I guess was the Moriarty surrogate. I think they should have just called him Moriarty, but we're a right. little biased. And I think that was the first character that Glenn Keane supervised. Really kind of a campy villain. A lot of fun. I love the way Sherlock and Watson are portrayed as mice. It's very cute. They're on a case. It's a caper. I think it's an underrated one and then in that was 80 was that 85 or 86 that was 86 and then black cauldron was 85 great mass detective was 86 then oliver and company was 88 and then little mermaid was 89 so that's how it went and for some reason oliver and company is fine too but there was a lack of magic with these things i guess the great mass detective wasn't a musical i think that's a as much as I'm not really a big fan of musicals, I would rather see something like The Great Mouse Detective, not only the, as a kid, but even today, I sort of feel that way. They just weren't hitting. They weren't resonating. And The Little Mermaid, Little Mermaid, you know, it went back to that mold of princess pictures, you know, like the, like the things that came before that were very successful, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. And I think, I guess it's, that's just what the doctor ordered. That's just what Disney needed at that time. And it, it finally struck. They finally struck gold and the rest is history. So in the lead up to like the more immediate lead up to The Lion King, you know, with The Little Mermaid hitting in 1989, you have to assume that spirits were higher at the studio at that time, leading into Beauty and the Beast and all of these kinds of things that right. pre- as preludes to The Lion King. Even if the B team, the so-called B team, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I don't know anything about animation. No, I sure, I, sure. I, I don't course. know anything about these characters to know like who was actually good and who wasn't. But you have to assume that talent was being attracted enough, you know, with these these new hits that even the B team was obviously very capable of making something great, right? There's it, in reading about this, it's it, it, some of it makes it seem like it was not nefarious, but like the sinister shit where like Disney had no faith in this team. Like, they didn't even care about this team. Right. And I don't know that I necessarily believe that a team that reviled or seemingly reviled or cast away could make something like this. So is it overstated how B-teamish these guys were? Or did all the talent really did go to Pocahontas? I think they... I think that The Lion King is a very notable success for, you know, in spite of what was going on for a lot of reasons. But that is, that is one of the reasons that it does seem like such a strange success and that it worked out the way it did because, well, first of all, I think Disney made sure that the Lion King had some star power, not not because they were superstars, but I think it they made sure, smartly made sure that there was enough talent on the Lion King and guys like Ruben Aquino and Andreas Deja. These guys weren't new to animation. They just weren't they just weren't as seasoned as some of the people that got their druthers to go on to Pocahontas. But these guys weren't new. You know, these guys already did key work on characters. Like I was saying, Ruben Aquino on, I believe, Ursula, which is a, Ursula was a feat of animation. I mean, think of Ursula. She was very busy. She had eight tentacles to deal with. I mean, hand drawing this character, you can't, you can't be a, even a, you know, a journeyman. You had to be you had to be the the dude to do, or the woman to do this type of work. 
So and they Flotsam had, and Jetsam too, of course, the best characters. Flotsam and Jetsam. Who I don't characters. know if the, I don't know if Ruben Aquino handled those two characters, but they are awesome. I, I was just making a joke. They, they're beautiful. They, I, I love those characters. Like they're just, they're so cool. One of them has like the glazed over eye, right? right? So so neat. But you know what the thing is? You know what's even more striking than the talent thing, if you think about it? Disney was finding such great success with three princess pictures in a row. And The Lion King wasn't a princess picture. They were taking a big departure with this. Pocahontas was... Now, that's not to say that Disney was being safe. Because if you look at the formula, The Little Mermaid is a princess picture. Excuse the pun, but it's a fish-out-of-water story. This, this woman, this girl character this princess character fantasizes about something that she is so foreign to her something that she wants to be that she can't have very typical formulaic thing set in water it's a set piece brilliant you could understand very and very appealing and beautifully handled by the top talent glenn Keane handled ariel it was gorgeous very well done you now you go on to beauty and the beast another princess picture but a little different because the villain, the quote-unquote villain, isn't really a villain. Now, you have another actual villain in Gaston, but you don't make much of him. He just seems like a blowhard. And who the villain is presented as in the first three quarters of the movie is the Beast. So you're not dealing with a typical formula in that movie. It, it's sort of breaking molds and doing something a little different even though technically it is a quote-unquote princess movie even though Belle is not a princess she goes on to be become a princess but do you know what i mean yeah yeah. Absolutely. so that's a little different now aladdin the next film now of course you have rescuers down under and i hate when people forget about that movie because i like that movie and i think it has its merits but if you're going on to the next major picture that people refer to Aladdin is sort of a half a princess movie because it deals it does deal with Princess Jasmine, but it's also dealing with this pauper named Aladdin and it's sort of 50-50. So that's breaking the mold. And Aladdin's one of my favorite films. It's very, very well done and very, very expertly paced. Not a bo- there's not a boring second in that movie. It's a lot of fun. But you're coming off of three princess pictures and now you're doing something about anthropomorphic animals again. Well, the last anthropomorphic animal thing you did didn't do too hot. In fact, the last five if you go back right like let's look at them rescuers anthropomorphic animals fox and the hound i wouldn't call fox and the hound anthropomorphic animals but it was centering on animal characters black cauldron is an anomaly black cauldron was (laughs) black cauldron was a push from some of the in-house talent to do a lord of the rings-esque thing and not only did they did a bad job with it, but by the time it came out, it wasn't the 70s anymore or the 60s when maybe a Lord of the Rings thing would have had a little more interest. Did people not like it at the time? I know it's not what it was. A, it's now. a terrible movie. Disney buried it. Disney absolutely buried it for about 20 years and just refused to even acknowledge it. Now, I think when it came out, it even had a very limited theatrical release release and i begged mom and dad to come take take me to see it and i went to go see it at like radio city music hall or something and i remember coming out of it like even as a how old was i then 11 and i was like oh man that was not a good that wasn't a good look <laughs> like it was it was bad it was really bad and you could see them trying to pepper it with lord of the rings-esque type stuff star wars type stuff you could see what they were trying to do but it just wasn't working it just really wasn't working. And 
The next one with the anthropomorphic animals, great mass detective. And then another movie with animals, Oliver and Company. So if you look at, they were really hedging their bets. They weren't doing too good with the animal stuff. So they must have really been feeling their oats when they decided to jump into the Lion King. They must have really believed in it, even to get that off the ground. So that, it seemed like it, the movie had a lot of things, you know, sort of count striking against it. And, it you know, but it was a success against all odds. But I think a lot of it had to do with, I think a lot of it has to do with the scoring and with Elton John's music. Right. So let's talk a little bit about okay. that. As I said earlier, the the we there's like a there's a I think we kind of take for granted that Disney movies are now musicals or in this era, right? And you expect I, it. I don't. I'm looking at the list here. Rescuers isn't a musical. No, but Little Mermaid is. Beauty and the Beast is. Aladdin is. Pocahontas is. Hercules is a musical. Yeah. Mulan. Is Mulan a musical? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is. I haven't seen Mulan since we saw it in the theater 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, it is. And Tarzan, I don't know anything about. Also a musical. But in, 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 in talking about the movies, not only like the movies that I love from the past, but not all of these are musicals, and it seemed like it was kind of like, you know, not necessarily common to have that. But the music is everything here. And, and reading about specifically, you know, how Hakuna Matata came out about, you know, the, the kind of the research trip to Africa, and they came back with this this saying that they wanted to kind of work into it but obviously can you feel the love tonight elton john this elton john-esque sort of gravitas that he brings to projects but also you know the the han zimmer score is you know not you know away from the kind of the soundtrack but just the scoring of the movie is is quite impressive as well and something that's extremely memorable it's brilliant but i also loved you know the 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 opener the circle of life kind of (sighs) opening scene is really i think one of the most revelatory and memorable scenes that I've ever seen in a movie. I was going to ask you how you felt about it. Yeah, how do you feel about it? Powerful. It's powerful. And it's it's timeless. And I think that it's probably the strongest opening of an animated movie that I could remember, particularly, you know, an American-made, you know, children's animated feature. I can't think of any any movie that starts on a, on a more powerful powerful note. And it holds up. You know, we're talking about, you know, almost 25 years ago now. You know, it's insanity to think that that would be that that amazing. What are some of the other memorable scenes for you in this? I, I like, you know, obviously the death scene is terrible. Yes. And Cole Bullis writes in us. So for those of you that don't know, that might be new to the show. If you support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins last stand at the two dollar a month level or higher, I will let you know the topics that we're going to record before they get recorded. And you can submit your questions, comments, concerns, memories and thoughts for whatever the topic might be. And we got quite a few submissions here for the Lion King. Oh, that's good. I'm excited. And Cole Bula says the Lion King was one of only two movies. The other being in home alone when Kevin and his mom are reunited in the end that I can specifically remember making me almost cry when watching it in the theater as a kid. Now that I have two kids of my own, I'm reluctant to even watch the film's dad wake up scene again. That scene really is memorable. And but Disney, I don't know how you, if you agree. And I think you probably do. I'm pretty sure that you do. Disney has this really strange ability An animated film has a really strange ability generally to evoke very unusual sad emotions and things that you can relate to even though in this case they're anthropomorphic animals sure the death of a parent is so powerful and i think that disney's uplifting messages are just as stunning as their downtrodden messages and their sad messages i always you know we were talking about a little bit about the little mermaid when when ariel loses her voice i love that scene when ursula she makes like the pact with ursula and stuff like that it's It's like an amazing 
and sad and somber scene. And you know it's all going to work out in the end, just like it all works out for Simba. But the other thing that I liked about that particular scene is that it marks kind of the end of the childhood chapter of Simba's story and, and, and you know, the story of, of Nala and all of these, you know, and, and obviously Scar's kind of ascent yeah. to this almost dystopian pride now that he's like over, you know, looking over. Absolutely. How powerful was that scene to you? It's so, it resonates so strongly. And, you know, make no mistake, I know this is um, very often talked about, but think about it. The, the death of a parent in an animated film, and now you could think about this all the way back to films like Bambi. I mean, this was many decades ago. This is not an accident. This is a, this is a thing to evoke an emotional response from a child. There's nothing strong. There's no, there's no better thing. I say better. There's no stronger thing to evoke emotion from a child than the death of a parent. They yep. do th- this is done on purpose. This is not an accident. Bambi, Bambi startled me as a kid. Oh, it's unbelievable. And it's all, it's all done off screen. I wrote this down because I saw just in, in researching for this episode that internally people that were disparaging about the Lion King used to call it Bamblet because <laughs> it has half a very, Bambi and half Hamlet. Yeah, yeah, because it has like this very yeah, it's got a, it's so they would call it Bamblet. But you're right, it's it, and that's almost that's dark. It's a dark thing, but if you want a properly and I'm not I'm not defending it. I don't really know how I feel about it. I never really thought about it too for too long a period of time but i will tell you that it's not an accident this is designed to evoke an emotional response from a young person it's not an accident that the parents are so often missing or dead in a disney film this is just whether the whether the, the star characters are anthropomorphic animals or regular you know more realistic animals or humans or whatever they are toys whatever it is right this is a real thing it's a formula that works for right or for wrong and it all comes down to me in a, in a not only an animated film but any film is a is a is a amalgamation and a combination and sort of a a recipe of a many elements you have editing you have music you have sound you have the voice acting you have the color you have the background art but the main key ingredient and i know i'm an animator so i'm a little biased but the main key ingredient is the level of acting that's achieved by the guy sitting there with the pencil. That the acting in this scene, the little nuances, the expressions, the emotion, the expressions that you see running through Simba's face is very powerful and very visceral. And that's really what you're you're responding to a combination of all those elements that I talked about, but it's really the acting that could be it's it speaks to the power of the medium of animation. Animation is not a genre as we know. It's a it's a medium. And I, I, I only say especially hand-drawn animation because CG animation it just isn't there yet. I think it's going to get there. I think it's getting there. I think it's, had, I think it's had its moments. And some of my favorite animated films are CG. The movie, I don't know if you ever saw Tangled. No, I, I've not seen anything modern. Tangled really. is, if you guys haven't seen Tangled, I know it's a bit of a departure from what we're talking about right now. Tangled came out in 2010, maybe. It was... You know, the precursor to Frozen. Everybody knows Frozen. But Tangled, the story of Rapunzel, was was an earlier CG effort, not by Pixar, but by Disney proper. And the character of Rapunzel was supervised by Glenn Keane. And it was his first CG character. And it's just... it's, It's a joy to watch. The acting, it's adorable. 
it's not necessarily a musical, which is kind of refreshing. She's she's a cute heroine, but she's empowered, but she also has that femininity that's very charming. It's just a very it's it's undersung. I, I, I hope everybody goes out and watch Tangled after I after I talk about it. It's so I guarantee you're gonna like it. It's it's hilarious. It's just it's such a it's such a delight that movie. I can't say enough about it. So one of my favorite film what I'm saying is one of my favorite films is a CG animated film. So I'm not speaking out against CG. I think it's getting there. And that movie just blew me away. So much better than Frozen, by the way, guys. If you have little kids that love Frozen, make sure they see Tangled as well. Cuz it's so good. And and people missed it for some reason. So th- that's the power of acting in animation and that's why i talk about too not to get off on a tangent but i'm so passionate about this disney has the ability they have the star power and they have the talent and they have the money to go back and do a traditionally animated thing why not do a traditionally animated marvel picture what what is stopping you from doing this you want to sell toys you know kids like kids love traditional animation there's something I'm not talking about necessarily high-budget 3D animation, but there's something inherently cold oftentimes about digital animation, especially this stuff now that you're seeing on TV. And I love flash animation, and I love digital animation, and I love puppeted, quote-unquote, puppeted animation. I think it could be very well done. But a lot of it's very... A lot of it's not, you know? Go back and do a traditionally animated... I would love to see a traditionally animated Star Wars thing. And I would love... Like, why not make a, one of the anthology movies a traditionally animated Star Wars movie? It's never been done. You know how well it would do if it was well done? It's it's preposterous that they're not considering this. You know? I just feel... It's like, put me in, Coach. Like, right, put right. me in over there, Disney. I'll make sure this gets done. You know, I, I was really hoping Lasseter would push for that especially coming from the world where he comes from, which is traditional animation. But why not do that Marvel or that Star Wars feature? Why not do that anthology Star Wars film and, and animation? It's, it's pointless not to try it. So, you know, the, the power of traditional animation is just so broad and so powerful if you just have the time and the money to do it thoughtfully. And The Lion King is so indicative of that, you know, especially that the death scene. And also why that scene resonates too is it's, it's partially Simba's fault that that happens. And now he's seeing the the error of his ways in the most tragic way possible. So that I think that's especially why. Sorry to get off on tangents, but I'm really no, passionate about that. No, that's great. You know, that's another reason why that scene, you know, really resonates. And the whole stampede scene. I think that was the first time we were really seeing a CG effect put into. That's how they got those many wildebeests. Was with a sort of a CG program to, to do that. Cause that wasn't, those wildebeests weren't all hand drawn like that. That was the first time we were seeing something of that scale in a traditionally animated film. And I think that's why that was really extra, you know, had extra resonance, you know, very powerful, very powerful scene. We got another question here from Ian. He hey, says, Ian. nothing in the entire world brings me back to my childhood as strongly as the lion King does the soundtrack, the imagery, everything about it gives me an intense rush of nostalgia that can't be matched by anything else. That soundtrack can make me tear up on any given day. It's hard to explain. What is that thing for you? What has the strongest tether to your upbringing? Mm. Interesting question. What do you? What do you Great have, question. Do you have an answer to that? Does anything spring to mind? One specific. Let's say, let's say like one specific film. Sure. One yeah, specific like a film. Thing. Let's say yeah. He says a specific thing, but we can call it a film that has the strongest tether to your upbringing. I mean, for me, I, I'd be remiss not to say. I want. I want to hear yours too, Carl. I would. I, there's two things, but I would be remiss not to say 
the most powerful one by far is Star Wars. I mean, that's Star Wars made me who I am. I mean, more than anything else, the end. You know, the first Star Wars, Empire, and Return of the Jedi, of course. You know, the other thing I would say that really had the deepest, that probably dug the deepest into my psyche as a work of fiction. I'm going to end up forgetting something and waking up at night and be like, no, it's this thing. But, and it might sound funny, but the anime cartoon that we knew as Battle of the Planets that was really called Science Ninja Team Gotchaman, that was the first anime that I saw as like a six-year-old that turned me on to like, this is not, this is something different than I'm used to and this is from a different place. And what the hell is this? And I want to see all of it. That literally is what, made me not want to go to baseball practice and all that stuff that I talked about. That was a specific turning point for me as not only like a glutton of nerd culture as a six-year-old, but like wanting wanting to be a part of it and wanting to do it with my life. So those are the two things for me. What about you, C? I was going to say Star Wars is certainly one of those things, but I was going to talk about, you know, more in line with that kind of mid-80s aesthetic is, is, is Labyrinth. There's something about the beginning and the end of the movie, specifically the beginning about loneliness and maybe absentee parenting and selfishness and all these kinds of themes that aren't necessarily dealt with throughout the course of the movie. And obviously the strong aesthetic of the movie is what's so, you know, and David Bowie's gigantic crotch are the two things that draw <laughs> me into the... Piece. He has just a cod piece for, for the ages in that movie. It's an unbelievable... <laughs> I've said it to you in the past. I might have even said it on the show, but it's striking to me that no one during the production of that movie was like, we got to tone the dick down it's because a, it's out. It, this is a children's movie and it's out of control. It's overtly sexual. It's ridiculous. And by the way, why is this man throwing this baby in the air? <laughs> what is going on in this movie? But there's something really dark and foreboding about the beginning and the end of the movie. Yeah, definitely. That, that st- struck me in a visceral way as a child that scared me that made me scared i had this fear i don't think i've ever even vocalized this i had this fear as a kid okay that i would turn into somebody else that i would not be colin my parents would be my, you know betty ann and jerry and all this kind of stuff and there was a little bit of that in that movie where she wishes her brother away oh wow and there was something that connected that's how the movie begins and it's something that connected that to me the goblin king comes and takes this this baby and she yeah. goes on and rescues it you know kind of reluctantly going into this labyrinth did this movie so. start this fear for you or did you already have this i don't know if they seem they seem to be somewhat interconnected it's interesting to the point where you know and, and you might remember this you might not but like i would make mom and dad promise every night that they would see me the next morning i don't know if you remember this i don't so i would say like you know you know you know, dad or mom would be like, you know, good night, Colin. Good night, mom or dad. Uh, love you. Love you. See you in the morning. Promise. That's a, that, that's adorable. Yeah. I never knew about this. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. So it was like this thing where I was afraid. I loved my family and my life oh. so much that I was afraid I was going to be removed that's, from it. That's... Like the baby was removed and, you know, and David Bowie and his gigantic dick took took the baby <laughs> to this labyrinth, <laughs> you know, in the middle of nowhere. So. So that that movie has like a real strong, almost negative resonance emotionally with me, even though I, lo- I absolutely adore that movie. Like the the scenes where he's like twirling the crystal balls in his hands yeah. and stuff like that. Like there's just really 
striking visuals in that movie that are amazing and the the different characters i love the the dog character like that's like the yeah super the fencer or whatever. not the fencer but the that's what, what do you call it oh like, that character yeah. i know what you're talking about yeah 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 that, yeah that's like on the guarding the bridge it's like so, totally outrageous that's what so, a great movie but so fun but yeah that, i think you know i think ian that's the, that's the one for me but you know what's interesting about that kyle this is not to get too psychological, not to put you on the couch here or anything like that. Although you are, oh, on I am, the couch. I am on the couch. All you gotta do is lay back. It's not the casting couch, but it's the couch. <laughs> it is, but well, okay. That's a, well, there's a, a few stains on there. Time. I figured that there was something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but we know what I was gonna say was, even though this movie was making you feel a certain way, you still wanted to watch it over and over. again. I watched it like every day. There's something very powerful, powerful about that because I'm sure The Lion King was the same way. It's not. Watching Simba's father die and him scream in anguish and be tortured is not a necessarily a pleasant viewing experience. But as kids, we want to watch it over and over again. It's almost like we're conditioning ourselves and we're getting used to feeling these feelings that we're going to feel in life. It's strange, but it's I guess it's just, you know, chalk it up to human nature. And that's just how who we are and how we're programmed. That's right. how we're wired. And that's it. And by the way, David Bowie, that was a sneaker shoved in there. Cut the shit. <laughs> I always thought he was just uh, so obviously wearing like a sports cup, you know? Like, what's going on? You know, you might have had a, a sizable dick, man. Oh, it's David Bowie. He probably had a sizable one. Thomas Neville wrote into us and said, regarding The Lion King, I'd be curious to hear Dagan's thoughts on rolling movies like this out to his kids. Mm. My son, Colin, who I, I don't know if he's named after me, but I'd like to think he is, is turning I three. He is. He loves The Lion Guard, which is an animated spinoff, but hates The Lion King. Says it looks yucky. He I also loves the recent live-action Jungle Book, but won't watch the old animated one. What are Dagan's kids' favorite Disney movies? Wow, won't watch the old Jungle Book. Isn't that funny? I'm this wondering kid, this about kid, that. This this kid at three years old is already a uh, uh, is already playing devil's advocate and and already you know already taking the unpopular positions that's, just just to do it. That's hilarious. I love Lion Guard. But I hate the Lion King. But I King. hate Lion King. Now, what? who's the our listeners? Thomas name? Neville. This is Thomas? So, Thomas, it's so funny that you bring this up because what had happened the other... One of my favorite... We'll get it. I want to learn. We're going to go through our list of favorite Disney films at the end. Animated films at the end. But one of my all-time favorite Disney films is 101 Dalmatians. Art directed by the most brilliant art director to ever work in animation, Ken Anderson. I can't say enough about that guy's art. But now I get really animation nerdy on this thing, whole thing, so I should stop. But I love this movie. And I re at certain point, I have it on DVD. I don't have it on Blu-ray, but I have it on DVD. And at a certain point, a few weeks ago, I realized that my kids had never seen this movie. Now, preface this to say, my son is obsessed with dogs and puppies. He's, he's seven. We finally did get a puppy this winter. We have a, an actual puppy that the kids tend to ignore for some reason. But <laughs> already, but poor Kiki, but... We have an actual dog now, but he's obsessed with puppies. He, he thinks they're adorable, and he goes to bed with about 10 stuffed animal puppies at night, the oldest of which is named Puppy, and it's a Dalmatian puppy from 101 Dalmatians. Now, for whatever reason, in my insanity, I, I just never realized that they've never seen this movie, and I got really excited when I realized this about three week, two or three weeks ago. I said, we're going we're gonna to sit down and watch 101 Dalmatians. So I said this for a few nights. And maybe the next weekend we had time and I said, we're going to sit down and watch this. And I sat down and watched it with just my son because my wife and my daughter went out. Hated it. Fell asleep. He was, you could tell he was completely bored and glazed over. Now, I don't know how many people have seen this movie, but this was during an era when 
rightfully so, they put the animator's credits during the opening credits. So during the opening credits of a movie, similar to a live-action movie that you might see at, at that time, they Disney was so fond of his guys that he put their names in the beginning of the movie. And there's a whole sequence with animated Dalmatian spots popping up and everybody's names popping up. Supervising animator, art director, whatever. He was like, why is this? A he, he, his first thing was like, why is this at the beginning of the movie? This is terrible. You know, and there's animated vignettes of like Dalmatians walking across the screen and it's, 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 it's cute and the music's going and it's very bubbly. Couldn't stand. I could tell all, he, he's like, why are they doing this right now? He just wanted to get into the movie, you know? And then I'm starting to realize like this is a, a film from a different era. This doesn't. Now, my kids don't have my kids are fine. They're not they could they could watch things. There's not, you know, a lot of attention deficit going on with them, with them in particular, like I know is very prevalent with a lot of kids. And a lot of kids that I know as well. But they're fine with that usually. But he just wasn't having it. Fell asleep 10 minutes into the movie. Couldn't stand it. The next weekend, I was like, I was going out. And I was like, you guys should watch 101 Dalmatians tonight. And mommy's like, oh, yeah. You know, mommy. Helene's like, you know, yeah, let's do it. You know, let's, we'll watch it. I got back the next morning. I said, did you guys watch Dalmatians last night? They were like, yeah, it was boring. We shut it off like the first 15 minutes. They didn't even get to the part with the puppies. Because <laughs> the movie opens and... You know, it's Pongo and his owner, and then they meet Purdy, and then they become, you know, they get married. The humans get married. The dogs are together now, and they're having a litter of puppies, and Cruella wants them. So it's like a half hour or so into the movie before the puppies are even born. They never even got to the freaking puppies. So I think there might, I there must be something that's dated about the movies and the pacing. Maybe it's the look of them. That's starting to the Lion King's much more contemporary, actually, twenty years after Dalmatians, but no, thirty years after, thirty years after Dalmatians. So, I don't know. There just might be some inherently something changing as kids are exposed to media and a certain aesthetic and a certain pacing, maybe, and a certain, you know, certain colors and a lot more colors now with the advent of the computer and certain storylines and certain tropes and different things maybe they're just being turned off to this stuff now it's interesting this particular thing was my f the, my first experience with that but my kids typically don't go back to the and watch things prior to the 80s so and you're talking about dalmatians which is a lot older and as far as their favorite disney films let me think if we're if we're including pixar in it Inside Out is a big one for both of them. They both love that film. Frozen, of course. I never saw that movie. I just let it I've seen it. It's overrated. It's overrated. I have a Shit. feeling that that's absolutely true. It's it's overrated. I, I, I knew it was overrated as I was watching it the first time in the theater. I was like, this is not. And also, I'm coming off a of Tangled a few years prior. It Frozen doesn't hold a candle to Tangled. That's how good Tangled is. It's so good. It's so cute. Go watch that movie. It's that Pixar Kool Aid. It's not Pixar. Oh, Frozen. Tangled. Is Frozen isn't Pixar. Oh, that's also Disney. It's proper? Disney. Yeah. It's oh, Disney I always proper. thought that was a Pixar movie. They still maintain their own. Oh, interesting. Their own thing aside from Pixar. Oh, interesting. Although, okay. as I as I mentioned, John Lasseter is the overlord of that. Right. Right. I you always know, assumed Frozen say. just by the aesthetic. I always assumed Frozen was a. Pixar. No. No, that's Disney. Very interesting. And, you know, my, as far as my kids' other favorites, I'm trying to think of their favorites from the night. You know what my daughter loved that she went through that was really, Thomas, which was really different? My daughter went through a big Emperor's New Groove period. Interesting. Did you ever watch that? No. Hilarious. Kyle, you got to watch that movie. It's completely underrated. 
a Disney film that came out, you know, quote unquote, after the early aughts, period right, of Tarzan. Yeah. Gorgeous. So funny. Directed by Mark Dindle, who directed Cats Don't Dance before he went to Disney. Has a real, really fast paced cartoon sensibility to it. I want to see when that came out. 2000. Yeah. Be- beautiful movie. I'm looking at this. I'm just looking at this list real quick to see if my kids have any other favorites on here. No, I think that's about it. Just the ones I named. They liked it. My daughter loved Tangled when she was little, too. She was born in 2007. So when Tangled came out, she was three. She was right in that wheelhouse. And she had Tangled everything. You know, Rapunzel everything. So, yeah. So Straw, Straw Hat Ninja. I don't have any children, so I can't. Great name. Question. Straw Hat Ninja says. I wonder if that refers to uh, Kibagame Jubei from uh, Wind Ninja Chronicles. Because he had the straw hat with the string on it. I think Lion King still holds up as one of the best movies ever created by Disney for many reasons, he says. The music is one I think it's still remembered in reference today. What do you guys think of the music, and are you living the Hakuna Matata way of life? You damn well know <laughs> that I am not even remotely living the Hakuna, <laughs> Hakuna Matata, Matata life. Are you living the Hakuna Matata life? We're no. pretty similar to people. God, I'm an animator. Work 60 hours a week just on that. You know? <laughs> I had to get up. My my legs are killing me for some reason. I'm, I'm keep moving around. He's doing a lot of sitting, which is weird because that usually doesn't hurt your legs. That's true. Well, so, you're sitting on your leg. Right that's now. true. I am. It's just the the base on the way the mic is and stuff like that. The we talked a little bit about the soundtrack earlier, and and I do want to reiterate that you know I was never I was always drawn into specific tracks, but never soundtracks. I never owned a Disney soundtrack. I never felt like I needed to go buy the Aladdin. No, nah, good point. Like me I too. remember our sister Allie. Love the Aladdin soundtrack, and I, I, I was like, okay, this is fine. There's a lot of filler on all these soundtracks too. Again, going back to the Little Mermaid, when she, like, just the not even a song, but just the notes she sings when she gets her voice taken yeah. are like really memorable. You know, it's like, yeah, do it for us. That is more memorable to me than any song in that in that movie for me. Like, yeah, just the good notes, point. You know, good, good point. Maybe that's the proto musician in me when I was a child, but who knows. Alex Castellano says, what could possibly be different about the scheduled live action Lion King remake that would make it any different from the 94 film? Can a movie with nothing but CG animals look or play out any better than its predecessor? I didn't know anything about this. I Is John Favreau directing this? I believe he directed Jungle Book, didn't he? I don't. I, you're asking the wrong person I about that. I think he did, which was actually supposed to be very good. But I could understand remaking the Jungle Book, but I can't. I don't know if I understand remaking, although I love the Jungle Book, but I don't know if I understand remaking Lion King. That seems like a cash grab. Yeah, it does. And and I was going to say, Dagan, by the way, that I was surprised in looking at, like, I I remember there being more Lion King spinoffs than there actually are. Lion King 2 Simba's Pride, which I don't even know if it was released theatrically. It probably was. No, that was direct video 1998. I don't know what the fuck this even is. The Lion King 1 and a half. That was... was 2004. direct video And then Timon and Pumbaa's cartoon, I do remember. Yeah, they had a series. That was from 95 to 99, 85 episodes of that. But I, I bring that up only because, you know, the, the Lion King entered production alongside Pocahontas in 1991. So after kind of marinating for a while, so three years to get it done, Pocahontas took four years. But there was no, you would expect a greater cash grab on that kind of time investment. But they did make a billion dollars at the box office, so they didn't really need to, to rush around. That's true. I was also surprised by, you know, I remember Simba's Pride being a thing. And I, I and I was surprised that it was four years later, although I guess it takes time to write, animate and get these things out. It's not like you can just turn around and, you know, you would expect that to be out immediately. But yeah, no, I hear you on that. They might have been flirting with that one as a theatrical thing, but the quality wasn't high enough. Yeah, my wife named that was Kovu. Simba's son was Kovu, right? That my wife named her cat, one of her cats after that. So that's oh, that's cute. It's always that always resonates. 
Derek Nyhart says, did either of you ever play the SNES game? You may have both been too old for that style of game at the time. I wasn't. But as a youngster, that game was so hard. Great soundtrack, too. Just thought of my next knockback topic submission, your favorite soundtracks from video games. That is a good one. Good pull. As I refer, I think I might be confusing this with Aladdin. But I that think, was a brilliant game, especially on the Genesis. I was gonna say I think the Disney movies were had games that were actually fundamentally different in some ways between the platforms. And I do remember, and again, I don't know if it's Lion King or Genesis that I think it was one of the rare times, well, along with the like the EA Sports games and stuff that Genesis had and Mortal Kombat and stuff that Genesis had a better, just better, the better versions of those games. Yeah, I remember playing it. My friend had it. My friend Tim had the game on Genesis, and I didn't like these. It was a pretty hard game, but I didn't like these these platformers, these these licensed platformers. I, I I just that's not why I played video games. Aladdin, he had Aladdin, Tim or Lion Tim King? had Tim had both, but we were talking about the Lion King, and I remember playing the Lion King. Okay, I can't think of many licensed games from that era that I loved, like Batman, Sunsoft Batman from 1989, 1990 from from the the Keaton Batman the NES. era. Yeah, I loved that movie Bru- or that game, brilliant, and the movie, brilliant game. But there's like that's like that's a rare thing for me. The licensed games really hit a dark note in the PS1, PS2, PS3 era. Yes. PS1, PS2 especially. Licensed games are way better. Became now. yes, they became way better. Yeah, they were really shovely doing that era. One of the benefits of the middle falling out of the gaming industry, where there's no middle, there's no middle in the gaming industry anymore in terms of market economics. There's small indie studios studios of one two five ten twenty people working on games then there's studios of 100 people working on games but the the middle tier thq style 40 dollar game that was often licensed or shovely like you said the the beauty of those disappearing is those games disappeared yes and and, and in return you ended up getting you know big games like the, the arkham games out of rocksteady which were excellent batman games specifically i like you know arkham asylum people love those games. arkham knight I could do without, but it but it was certainly pretty, and I love Batman villains. We'll talk about Batman because we're gonna do a dark yeah, night. Yeah, we're episode. gonna go through all that. Well, you know, a little anecdote about those games, Kyle, the SNES Lion King and Aladdin on both platforms. Those developers actually went to Disney Animators for the sprite animation. That's why they were so beautiful. So Aladdin and Simba, they were animated by those sprites were animated by Disney Animators traditionally. Oh, very cool. And then took it over. To, that's why they look so gorgeous. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah, the the license game thing it it wasn't at a, it wasn't at the super darkest it could have been at that time, but it got it, you know it's it's darkest before the dawn, and we found that out with <laughs> PS One and PS Two especially. Absolutely. Chad Lewis wrote in and said, "How do you guys feel about the iconic voices of Nathan Lane and Jeremy Irons being recast for the new movie? Yet they brought back James Earl Jones despite him having a more minor role. I can't imagine Timon and Scar without those fantastic performances. Were they recast, or did they just not want to do it? Because I can believe that they didn't. Maybe I want to be involved. I don't know." I don't, you know, I don't know too much about this. I got to find out more about this. I'm a little worried about it, especially Timon and Pumbaa, because they're they're so we didn't get too much into them yet, but they they those characters are so endearing. I love those two. Yeah, they're great. They're hilarious, timeless. Such great comic, such such great levity in the film. You know, you need them in there. Oh, they're so they're they're so great. The final question we got on the Lion King, Dagan, is from Ryan Hurley, who says, have either of you attended the Lion King on Broadway? As much as my wife and I love the original film, the musical gave us a whole new appreciation of the story. We think the musical soundtrack is just as good as the original, if not better. I would believe that because it's being performed live on Broadway, so that that would make sense to me. But I've never seen it. I've never had any interest in seeing it, although I, like, I can see the logo in my mind, like the treatment that they gave the logo. I want to say this began in the late 90s. It's been around for a long time. Maybe like 20 years. 
Yeah. Or almost 20 years. I could be wrong. No, I think that's about right. But I, I've never seen anything on Broadway, and I have no problem with plays. Like, I just have no real interest in seeing them. Yeah. Like, I, I'm not into that sort of thing. Have you? Ever, did you ever go see it? No. You know what? We try to take the kids to a Broadway thing every year. We were going to go see Lion King last year. First it, was B, first, it was BB&Beast. Then it was Lion King. And then we ended up actually seeing Cats instead, which I do not regret. It's gone now, actually. It's creepy. But, oh, I freaking loved it, dude. I was like, what is happening? First of all, we were in the second row, so it was an unbelievable experience. I'm so glad that we saw Cats. But I still, Lion King is still, I think, my daughter wants to see that the most right now. I think they're going to go see, I think my wife and daughter are going to see, what's the Wizard of Oz one? I'm sorry. Uh, Wicked. Wicked, I'm sorry. They're going to go see Wicked. But I think after that, that's got to be, Lion King is a must-see. And I will say also, my daughter just did a school play. This is how timeless and what staying power the Lion King has. Very uncommon amount of staying power. They just did her school play. She's in fifth grade. So the fifth and sixth graders put on a performance of The Lion King in February. And my daughter was in it, and she loved it. And they practiced day and night for like two months. And mom and dad came out to see it, and my in-laws. And it was unbelievable. So that's that's the only version of The Lion King we've seen, we've seen at this Fair point. enough. Close enough to Broadway. On stage. Close enough to Broadway. Off, off Broadway. Here in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Now, I have to ask you this, Dagan, before we go. And, you know, any final thoughts, obviously, I'd love to hear sure, from you as course. well. But what is the deal with the the sex thing? What I was reading was that they were trying to say SFX, like special effects. Do you know the story behind that? I remember, you know, again, we were back. By the time it came out on video, it was later in art school. And I remember trying to freeze frame it. I think we had it in class, and in the back of the class, we had a couple of pencil test machines, which were basically VCRs hooked up to a TV with an overhead camera mounted that was hooked up to the VCR that you could do animation tests on. So you put the piece of paper under, took a picture, you know, hit record first on the VCR, and then you filmed your pencil test frame by frame. And I remember popping into the VCR and trying to watch it in there because it had really good frame stopping capabilities compared to most VCR. Like, it was like a forehead VCR. And trying to find it but i don't think i don't remember ever seeing it it's there maybe we just missed it because is it only is it is it like a frame perfect thing where it's only there for a frame or two yeah like i think like you know like these things are happening and like there's a few frames where like it all settles and it's like it flourishes and that and then like goes away strange do you have any closing i like how this episode can't became more about animation more about the golden era more about all those things i I, then the lion king itself i think it it ended up being a more dynamic episode episode which i'm super excited about but yeah do you have any closing comments or thoughts you know what i love this quote by Don Hahn, who was one of the producers of the film. Because when they were pitching this movie, not only because they were pitted against Pocahontas and everybody's excitement for that project, which was actually going to come after and did come after, of course, but I think there was some reticence in the beginning to even do this film. There was a lot of selling involved. And I heard an interview recently with Don Hahn, and he said this. He was asked to do like an elevator pitch. And for those who don't know, an elevator pitch is like, Sell me something in a sentence or two. Sell me a film, sell me an idea, whatever it is. So he broke it down to, for the executives or whoever he had to pitch it to, this is what he said. So this film will be about a young lion cub framed for murder by his uncle set to some Elton John music. (laughs) And he said there was like a beat in the room. You know, it's a picture of a boardroom full of executives. There was like a couple of beats of silence. And somebody was just like, what? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that was his initial reaction to the movie. 
<laughs> say the say the sentence again. So this is what it was. This film will be about a young lion cub framed for murder by his uncle, set to some Elton John music. <laughs> what? <laughs> is that unbelievable? That's that's hilarious. That uh, sums it up so perfectly. That is that's awesome. Why I liked this episode a lot. I thought this was a fun one. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Are you ready for your lightning round? Let's do it. All right. Here we go. This will be an easy one. Okay. Timon or Pumbaa? That's a tough one, actually. Timon. He's he's cool. I like Timon. Lions or tigers? Tigers. Savannah or jungle? Jungle. Although I, lo- I love the image of the savannah with the one tree. Yeah. Like in the middle of this, that gra- iconic. this, this vast grass. What kind line. of tree is that? I don't shouldn't know. know. I yeah, should know I, that. I don't know if you should know that. You're not a botanist, but it's, but it's, <laughs> but it, yeah, no, I, I you're, you know, you're not an arborist or whatever, they, whatever a tree expert might be called. It's a lion tree. It's a Hakuna Matata tree. It almost looks like a cedar. It's not a cedar tree, but it almost looks like a cedar tree, like what you'd see on Long Island. It that, does. That, look that, like that a kind of very tree. sparse gnarled. foliage. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Gnarled kind of branches and whatnot. Okay. Disney or DreamWorks? Oh, Disney. 3D animation or 2D animation? 2D. Absolutely. Eat a beetle or eat a worm? I do remember that. I would I'd rather eat a beetle, for sure. Beetle over a worm? Yeah, definitely. Ooh. It's all dude, that texture. With the legs and shit. The texture of the worm is going to be awful, dude. Unless you're just going to down it. But you can down the beetle, too. Not that really? Yeah. I think of the barbs on the back of the legs. Oh, that turns, just turns me off. Okay. Elton John or Neil Diamond? Elton John. Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet? <sighs> I was King Claudius in Hamlet in sixth grade. Oh, nice. That's a good part. Yeah, it was. I remember being so embarrassed because they made us wear tights. <laughs> so talking about now, you're talking about David Bowie. I know now, and I and I also had my codpiece on full <laughs> you display. Had a sneaker, you had a Reebok shoved in there. <laughs> <laughs> totally ridiculous. Like the dimensions of it all fucked up. That's amazing. It looks like I have a disease, like a venereal disease. <laughs> you have an armadillo shoved down there, then, or whatever they say. Uh, Why spinal can't? Tap. Yeah, spinal, spinal tap, tap. Yeah, it go. Dude, this one goes up to eleven. <laughs> Brilliant. By the way, just a real quick, I did a podcast with these guys in Chicago. They're a small podcast, and they were they were t- laughing because I br- brought up how much I hate American movie. I think we were talking about American yes, movies. We did, and talk they were about saying it. like that you gotta watch. They're like you gotta watch it again. That movie's genius. And I'm Maybe like, I don't give it another. And I'm shot. like, I don't believe you, but I'll watch it again. I spent like 120 dollars on that DVD. It gets more, it gets more expensive every time I talk. I know you like. I think you probably paid like 25 bucks for it, but the but the, no, you paid 50. I think or something. I think like. it was like 50 bucks. I felt so bad because I love you so much, and that was like one of the very that was a that was the only miss I ever remember, and I never told you like immediately. You know, I remember. I remember watching it though with you, like because I had seen it once, thought it was hilarious, and when I watched it with you, and it might have been Allie, yeah, Allie, Allie, Allie as we well. watched it. We all like were gathered on my bed in my bedroom. I think. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I remember as I'm watching, I'm like, this isn't funny. <laughs> this isn't funny. This is a huge fail. You have something to live for. That's the only scene <laughs> I remember in the entire movie. I don't remember any other part of the movie. So maybe But right. they're saying give it another shot. Yeah, that's what they're saying. There's like it's funnier than you remember. And I'm like because mm. I was hoping for like a Christopher Guest style yeah, thing. That's what we wanted. You know, we were just talking about spinal tap, but obviously the Mighty Wind is probably my favorite Christopher Guest thing. Oh, that's a good one. What happened? What happened? Like, do you have you watched that scene at all at all recently? I with think him? I watched that movie recently. Like where he's like uh, he's like, I got a big red wagon. Like there's all this like he's like he's totally improv. It's so That's Fred Willard. Yeah, right? Fred Willard's the best. Oh, he's so fucking What good. happened? Could do, we could do a Fred Willard topic. Oh, I dude, anytime I see Gessler. anytime I see Fred Willard, I'm like, this is gonna be gold. He's off the hinges, and he's like really highly regarded by other comics. Like they know how brilliant he is, type of thing. 
Antelope or gazelle? Antelope. Good or evil? Good. Although evil is always more interesting, right? It's true. Venomous snake or killer croc? Venomous snake is more interesting. Cobra! (laughs) (laughs) Alligator or hippo? Hippo. What a weird animal. Who would you rather be attacked by? Uh, hippos are friggin' vicious. Crocodile, man. yeah. Hippos would be are bigger and faster. I, I think I have a better chance of getting away but from a crocodile. They could swim both their would get me. Off. Oh, hippos are weird, man. They are very weird, like archaic animals, you know. Banana or mango? Banana. I was never a big fan of mangoes. No mangoes? No. I I love bananas. Bad for you though. We were talking about that yeah, earlier. A lot of sugar, right? Yeah. And last one. Hakuna Matata or Circle of Life? Circle of Life. Because Hakuna Matata, Circle of Life's a fact. Hakuna Matata is a way of life that I just can't. You can't embrace. No. Not yet. means no worries for the rest for of the your rest days. For the rest of your days. Are you out of your minds? Like I, I can, might, I might be able to live. Like it means no worries for the next ten seconds. I can probably get through that, and then I'm back to reality. <laughs> I'm not sure you could, Kyle. No. Even when I was watching <laughs> Solo, I was like, "What do I have to worry about right now?" <laughs> when we were in the movie theater before. <gasps> That well was a good, done, my friend. That was a good, uh, a, a good lightning round. Thank you for that, of and course. thank you for your thoughts, Dagan. I, I, I catered that one to you because I knew you're a good storyteller, and oh, it made me almost you. wish that we didn't center it around the Lion King, but centered it around animation generally. I think we have to return to this topic multiple times. We could do that, and because I like to, and, and coming up into my mind, I was like, you know, a Don Bluth episode would be awesome. That very cool about episode. all his films from you know, well, like I never saw the Cat one. But the but Secret of Nim and 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 oh Banjo, yeah, I never I saw that, that, but I've seen everything available. else. Yeah. And so that would be a fun one. And then, like, the Dark Days of Disney would be a fun one, too. Like, and, and how staggered their releases were. And then suddenly they were releasing one every year. Absolutely. You could talk about Tim, sticking Tim Burton in a room in the studio once he graduated. And just, like, this guy's so weird. He's so talented, but he's so weird. Just What did he do- work on there? They literally put him in a room and were like, just do some, just develop. Like, he worked on development art for the Black Cauldron. And oh, he so did he all this outlandish that? stuff. And they were like... They knew they would never use it, but the stuff was so brilliant that they just kept them doing it anyway. And they stuck him in a room, I remember, with Andreas Deja, who's the German animator who I was talking about earlier, who was the lead animator for Scar, who's like a very well-dressed, straight-laced dude, and like Tim Burton, who's extremely strange. And like Andreas Deja always says how weird it was, like being in the same room with him because they were so different from each other. He literally, he did, they told him, they commissioned like little films for him. Like he did his uh, initial, you know how the film Vincent that he did eventually? No, I don't, I don't. He did a film called Vincent, which is like a semi-autobiographical film about him and how he was obsessed with Vincent Price and everything like that. But his first draft of that was done as like a young 20-something, as a short film. Like they just put him on special things. And then eventually he went on to, of course, do Nightmare Before Christmas with Disney. Mm. Oh, but he did a Disney. Did, that was Disney. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Okay, they, they produced it or distributed. How it, did he? I, I'm always curious. We should just save it for a show about him. But I'm always curious about, like, with his animation background. Like, how did you end up as like a director of mo- of live action movies? You I know? think it just speaks to his very distinctive vision. Edward Scissorhands. Edward Scissorhands. Every all the stuff he's done. I'm gonna tell everyone out there. Go to look at the Edward Scissorhand movie poster. And find the spelling error on it. Oh, is that right? There's actually a grammatical error on it. Yeah. And it's oh. it glaring and it fucking infuriates me. And the reason that I know it is oh. Allie had that poster in her room and it's, it says, what does it say? Holy cow. I didn't it's know something that. like the story of N most uncommon man. Oh, something wow. like that. And I'm like, how did they miss that? Instead of A. I like would just stare at it. I think that's what it is. Like the story of, of N most uncommon oh, man or wow. something like that. And I was like, I'm going to Google that. Oh, 
That's unfortunate. Yeah, I, and and I don't know if it was Ali's repro that had it, but I think it was just you know a movie post like that was. I was like, Edward Scissorhands is so sad. It is. I wait. I don't. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of Edward Scissorhands. No, I don't like it. I'm not a fan of it because it makes me sad. Yeah, and really. I that's yet. the only thing. I love Tim Burton. I love his vision, especially yeah, he's, visually. He's an interesting cat. He really is. Well, I, the last time I saw him do anything or say, say anything was I watched a documentary about the lost Superman movie that Nicolas Cage was supposed to be in, which he yeah. was supposed to direct, I think. And which he got in a huge beef with Kevin Smith over. Do you know that whole thing? That I don't. Kevin I don't. Smith versus Tim Burton. I don't thing? think so. Oh, well, listen to Kevin Smith talk about it sometime. I don't know who I'm going to take, whose side I'm going to take on that. You know, like I never heard it from Tim Burton's side, but Kevin Smith is so funny about it. You know, he talks about how he's like so out of his depth and so out of his league with it, but how like it was still that that was, Kevin Smith is out of his league. Yeah, he was yeah. talking. You know, he's very always self, right. very self deprecating. Anyway, but yeah, it's hilarious. All right, so thank you, Dagan, for your time. Appreciate thank you. you thank you, everyone much. out there for listening. Remember, you could support the show on Patreon, patreoncom stand. Uh, we'd really appreciate it if you threw us a few dollars a month. It really helps us do the show and other shows. Sidequest, the video game show, and Fireside Chats, the the eclectic interview series. And in the survey I did with my audience, the Patreon audience, the other month, one of the pieces of feedback I got was uh, Fireside Chats. Will we do more video game stuff and and all that on Fireside Chats? And I'm like, no, Fireside Chats is just going to get weirder and weirder. So just <laughs> so stick with me because I want to make it as eclectic as humanly possible. But so your support fun. of Collins I Stand supports all three of those shows, and we really appreciate that. But if you want to support us on freeze feeds, that's totally fine too if you're listening to on itunes google play soundcloud reviews and kind uh, words on those platforms would really be appreciated as it helps us find new audiences so thank you for that we'll see you next time hakuna matata hakuna matata if- and i forgot to say james baxter animated rafiki in the lion king he's probably the most brilliant animator who ever lived and everybody looks up to him even the super old guys so i forgot, I forgot about that so I have to put that in. Shout out to James Baxter. I animating forgot, Rafiki. I forgot. Rafiki didn't even come up at all. He's a great character. Great character. Very mysterious, almost medicine man type character. Played right? by Benson Dubois. Oh, okay. I don't, that sounds his real name. He played Benson in, in, in the Benson show. Oh, I was going to say, that name <laughs> sounds awfully that, familiar. Who's, who's that actor? I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't remember. But yeah, brilliant character. I was like, Benson. Look at Rafiki's animation. Everything he does is super, super amazingly fluid that's james baxter very cool shout out to james baxter he animated rafiki's skull necklace or whatever the fuck he had around him i don't even remember i, mean, I think i'm even not even picturing it right anymore <laughs> who am i picturing i, I think <laughs> i'm confused i think i'm confused i think i'm confusing him with rock steady from <laughs> <laughs> i think wan fu from samurai show <laughs> didn't he have the giant scimitar and <laughs> We're talking about we're talking about the blonde guy with the hair who did the flash kick. No, that's Guile. That's Guile. All right. Oh my God. <laughs> All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I think he does. Oh, he has the staff with the skull. Yeah, he staff with melons on it. I think. Oh, okay. Collins Last Stand Knockback is fan supported over at Patreon.com/slash Collins Last Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon. And I want to thank you from the very bottom of my heart for your incredible kindness and generosity. Harshiv Bahia, Martin Beck, Fred Bentz, David Blodel, Mark Boggio, Spencer Brand, Isaac Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Matthew Brousseau, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, John Burry, Alex Cabrera, Will Caldwell, Luis Cancado, Matthew Canoy, Shermer Carter, William Cashel, Brian Chan, Travis Chandler, Sean Chandler, Kenneth Char, David Chestnut, Steve Clifford, Dan Clifford, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Daniel Delanikos, Mitchell Durkash, Luke Drake, David Ellis, Eric Finkenbeiner, Michael Fior, Connor Gazian, Alexander Gates, Michael Gates, Daniel 
Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Richard Green, Ryan Greenwood, Miranda Grubba, Andres Guzman, Tyler Harris, Wyatt Henry, Andrew Hess, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Jeremy Key, Nathaniel Khalil, Taylor Christian Laudrin, Donald Laws, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith Adrian Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lewin Ray Loper, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, John McManus, Joe McPartland, Mike Menzel, Albert Miranda, Betty Ann Moriarty, Abe Mukhtar, Brian Nietzsche, Connor Nesbitt, Josh Netzel, Adam Nix, Adam O., Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Reed K. Parker, Todd Paxton, Brendan Peavy, Marius Scarzen Peterson, Enrique Perez, Eric A. Peterson, Jason Pettit, Lawrence F. Prokop, Eric R. Pryor, Jordan Ray, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Austin Riley, Ryan Robertson, Ramon Rodriguez Jr., Petro Rose, Michael Sanchez, Matthew Savoy, John Schultz, Chris Schaefer, Mike Shaw, Rayanne Scheinabarger, Toby Schutman, German Sadu, Jordan Smith, Riley Smith, Alexander Suarez, Ahmad Tamar, Tam Tran, Kevin Van Ekren, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Chris Wong, Michael Wells, Tyler Woodall, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Super Shot ST, Casual Misfits Gaming, Mad Mock Media, Beric, Mubarak, Dav9834, Chris, Doc2015, and Random Guy Radio.